Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. We're happy to be back. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, it's another week in the in the craziness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how you doing? Um, good. Doing well. I was just thinking about, um, you know, we're just, I think now we're in the routine. Everybody's, well, most everybody is wearing masks, <laughs> working hard, making a lot of connections between all of these um, public health crises, the pandemic, of course, but also climate in and inequity. And I'm sort of wondering if our democracy and our culture and our systems, specifically education and health systems are two that are top of mind, are going to uh, survive the extremes of what we're going through right now most days most days I think we'll grow through it you know and maybe get smarter and stronger and all those good things and then some days I'm a little bit less sure (laughs) yeah that sounds that sounds about right uh yeah I now I mean it's um it's been an interesting time I, I also feel like I should say that we uh you know live in the bay area and so for there are probably people out there where they're in communities that are not using masks as much as we are right no as soon as i said it i was like well not everywhere and not Not everyone for certain for certain yeah but yeah it's true here it seems like it's you know i've been appreciating that a lot of people in oakland especially seem to have really nice cool looking masks like beautiful (laughs) beautiful African prints and things like that. It's, it's, um, it's like a whole new style expression here in Oakland. Uh, so that's, that's, that's fun. But no, I totally get it. I mean, I, I don't have children. So like the schools thing doesn't hit me as much, but I, um, I can only imagine, I mean, schools are already such a big deal for, for people in general in their life. Um, when you have kids that like, this must just be frightening. I, I was pleased to see the folks at the uh, at Harvard's um, School of Public Health released some. Uh, Joe Allen posted on Twitter this piece that they wrote. It's like 20 questions to ask uh, before your kids go back to school. I think that it's not called quite that, but the, mm-hmm. it it seemed to me like the kind of thing that if I were if I was a parent, I would be like, okay, good, thank you. Somebody's like giving me the full list of stuff to think about. Yep. In terms of, you know, is it okay to send my kids back to school? Are the schools prepared? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, generally, it sounds like the schools aren't prepared, but, you know, <laughs> a, a list of things to think about um, yep. from a public health perspective. Uh, Absolutely. I, um, well, and boiling it down that way, I think it really helps people get their heads around what seems like a very unmanageable topic getting it into like, okay, these are the categories, these are the questions, these are the thing, these are the things I need to feel good about in order to make this work for my family, you know, like, that's really helpful, that kind of approach. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, I think um, it, it's, it's hard. I'm sure it's hard right now to be somebody that's sort of trying to be helpful in the vein of, so you want to send people back into like, you know, enclosed spaces. You know, like that, that already is a controversial yeah. premise, but like, 
I think I think they did a pretty good job of trying to get something down on paper. And yeah, I mean, it's just I don't know. I care a lot about it. I actually okay. I'm gonna make a plug for everybody if they ha- if they care about school buildings, which hopefully you do if you listen to this podcast. There's a, a write your representative thing going around for the, to to tell them to support the Rebuild America Schools Act. Um, which is a coalition of a bunch of different organizations that are trying to push that as a part of the recovery, mm-hmm. um, which would just send a whole bunch of money to public school buildings to do much needed repairs and upgrades and things, many of which would help their energy performance and stuff. So right. Uh, right. If, if, if you, you know, it, it would, I think it would also, there's some stuff in there about how it would specifically help with, you know, the healthiness of the buildings, which... Yep. As we all know, that's sort of like it's a huge need, and it's we're already in a deficit there. So, <laughs> check check it out. I wish I could remember the name of the website of the coalition, but they're doing you know fill out an easy form, and it goes to your congressperson and your senator and all of that. Great, it's, uh, it's very painless. Absolutely, yeah. I could go on and on about the school topic, but I think maybe you don't want me to do that. (laughs) But it is probably a good reminder. We'll have to have somebody on to talk about schools, which is not not hard to find. They have some great folks in our community who work on school buildings. Um, Yeah, yeah. But it's, I don't know. I'm I'm eager to see how it works, the whole going back to school thing. I guess by the time this airs, maybe a lot of people will have already done it. Who knows? Maybe we will know by the time... (laughs) We do know. I mean, public schools here are not going back. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, we already know it starts a week, two weeks from Monday. Um, two weeks from Monday. Are you feeling um, ready for it? Are you like, <laughs> um, no? <laughs> I'll just leave yeah. it at that. <laughs> but it will happen, and we will do it, and we will try to bring everyone along and do the best we can because that is that's what we will do. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like what I'm going through now, preparing for my class at Berkeley. Like, I, I, like uh, you know, I'm sort of like, okay, well, we're going to watch a lot of movies, though, right? That's going to happen. I can show the movies. <laughs> Is that allowed? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know the answer to that question, Lindsay. <laughs> well, it turns out to be extremely complicated as an educator because, you know, if you're teaching people in China, for example, which I will be, apparently, yeah. they have, you know, firewalls. You can't just send them like a YouTube link and say, oh, like, right. watch this thing, you know. Um, so it is actually, it gets kind of complicated for all of those um, university instructors out there in the world they're they're teaching people literally all over the world and it's hard you know there's been a lot of juggling of class times and things like that to be able to get everybody in a room at the same time so yeah it's um as you said education is is in a a difficult place right now as a as a profession but I'm hoping it goes as well as it can (laughs) and it will it will yeah we will grow that's that's right. I mean, I think that is actually the good thing that is happening right now is that really, even under extreme cir- circumstances, all different sectors and all different aspects of the you know the business world and and different social systems are having to reinvent and do all these things. And in a lot of cases, I mean, I feel stressed about the education, the k twelve education. Um, public side of that because the money, you know, it's already so strapped that that's a big struggle. But those, there's still are there's still opportunity for innovation and reinvention and and creative solutions, and those are all 
you know, those will happen. I mean, you know, not without pain and difficulty in certain circumstances, but they're happening. And so, it, and that's interesting too, to see. So I'm, there are upsides, I, you know, yeah, a lot of yeah. challenges, but some upsides for sure. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I feel the same way. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of innovation and doing things that are hard, let's get to our guest for today. Erin um, Mizan. Hey, Erin. Hey, guys. Thanks for being here. Um, we are thrilled to have you. Erin um, is the VP and Chief Sustainability Officer for Interface. Interface is a flooring company. I think a lot of us know um, primarily because of its founding CEO, Ray Anderson, who, if you haven't watched him talk about his enlightenment around sustainability, then you for sure should. Um, Aaron, in particular, is a, you're probably the first lawyer that we've spoken with on the podcast that has that background anyway, which is cool, and I'm excited to talk to you about that. Um, welcome, and uh, maybe we'll just start off by asking you to talk a little bit about how you, how you got into the path uh, that you're in now, what made you decide on sustainability, all of that. Sure, I'm excited to talk to you guys. Um, you know, I think my path 25 years ago was always trying to marry an interest or a passion that I had in protecting the natural world, which I've had since I was a kid, trying to basically find a way to make that a career. <laughs> so I always knew, even when I was like seven or eight years old, that I wanted to protect the natural world. And so my journey was about how do I make that a career? Um, so throughout you know, high school and college, it was really about getting that learning to understand. Ultimately, I decided to get a master's degree and then an environmental law degree. And, and what's interesting about that is it does you know, kind of prepare you for working in a certain arena but the history of how in this country we protect the environment is really about the movement around the environmental laws that we passed. So as boring as it might seem to kind of think about protecting the environment from a legal pathway, there's a lot of interesting history there about the role of science, the role of citizen movements in the passage and creation of things like you know, the Wilderness Act or the Clean Air, Clean Water Act. And so that was kind of my pathway. Um, got, you know, ultimately kind of graduated, went into a conventional law firm, but was lobbying for environmental groups on the side, <laughs> kind of doing work for them. And then I never had thought about taking that into the corporate or business arena until I heard of Interface and Ray Anderson. And I actually saw Ray give a speech and it was the first time I thought, wow, I could actually do this at a company and at Interface. And, you know, a weird series of events happened not too soon after me seeing him where someone at Interface actually recruited me. And that's how I ended up coming to the company 16 years ago. So a very twisted, <laughs> not linear path. Oh, that's so cool, though. I mean, I, we're thinking about starting to reflect on like patterns that we've seen in our guests and and for a lot of people I've been surprised to hear how early on in their life they decided they wanted to do this and I mean lawyers are some of the people at the front lines of this stuff for so many reasons right like there's all this stuff about 
policy interpretations and then there's like obviously the fighting for with the environmental NGOs it's just like choosing to be a lawyer is a really great one it makes a ton of sense think about it at its origin we're training you to be an advocate we're training you to kind of hold your own and be able to convince and argue and use facts and evidence it's mm-hmm. A great skill set that goes from fora to fora, right? Do you want to be in government? Do you want to be in a private company? Do you want to work for a nonprofit? You know, and I just found in its conventional practice, um, I think what people don't realize is it's not exactly the most social of <laughs> practices on a daily basis, right? It's not the courtroom drama, it's not the really cool stuff that people see it's a lot of writing and working things through on your own in a very repetitive way. (laughs) So, you know, that's the downside. (laughs) True. It also like, I think, I think that is how a lot of the work gets done in the world of sustainability, right? Like, at least in my experience, um, there's not a lot of jobs that look particularly exciting um, from the outside. Although I have to say, Aaron, I feel like these days yours seems like one of those that uh, it, 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 it feels, maybe it's because Interface is a company that actually makes stuff and that's cool. Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, you're right. It's nice that we aren't in the service industry, but that we can have something tangible and physical and it just so happens that I actually really like our products. I mean, the product the company launched with modular carpet tile from a design perspective, I think is amazing, but from a real human perspective who um, lives with two dogs who like to bring in half live chipmunks, um, the idea of being able to replace a section of your living room quite quickly I think it's genius. So I actually am also kind of a user of the products. Pretty much every room in my house is modular carpet tile. Um, So yeah, it's nice to, at the end of the day, be able to see that vision that we have in the company manifest itself, not just in the people who work here, but in the stuff that goes out. Yeah, I love that. And it is, I feel like you're you're very fortunate in that way. That's cool. Well, so, okay. So speaking of your job and, you know, career paths and how we find things, I am guessing that you have a lot of people who want to work with you um, because of all of the reasons that we've talked about, but can you tell us a little bit about what you look for in people who join your team these days? Because we talk a lot about on the podcast about how, you know, when you started, there weren't as many programs uh, that were kind of set out to get you into positions of doing corporate sustainability work. Um, And increasingly, I feel like that's, you know, there are ways to to kind of train yourself professionally into that path. But what, what do you look for? Do you look for people who have that background? Do you look for people with a more broad background? Is it not about background? I think it's a little bit about background, but not all about background. I mean, I think what is great is there are people now who we can hire into the company, whether they come from kind of a green MBA program or they have a level of experience with um, coming through programs that are developing skill sets like collaborative thinking or systems thinking that our company had to train ourselves how to use person by person. So 
we should always be taking advantage of that generation of sustainability professionals who know way more than me and are way more qualified um, than I am. But I think the other side of it is that's always the kind of knowledge base you want from a person. But the second most important thing is, are they going to be the right fit for your culture? And, you know, I think in order to make a successful hire, it's, yeah, you need to have the technical knowledge, but then you also need to figure out, is this person going to be a person that is, in our instance, and for this company, someone who's willing to continue to figure stuff out. So while they might know the theory of how to create a regenerative supply chain, the other thing they need to know is that is hard work. And, and if you're in a company the size of mine, which is just over a billion dollars, that's the small pool of people that get the work done on a global basis. It's about 4,000 people. So it's a relationship-based conversation. I don't have the authority given the size of my company or the amount of resources we have to tell all of our suppliers that they must deliver carbon negative raw materials to us by next week. I would love, love to do that. Um, so instead, it's a lot of convincing. So as, as much as we want people who have the technical expertise, we definitely want also to get the kind of people that have the patience, that have the persistence, that have the creativity to kind of pursue actually doing this. And so I think, you know, that you can find from their past experience. You can tell if people are going to be passionate enough about the idea of a regenerative supply chain to stick it out when it gets really hard. Um, and when people tell you like it's not possible and your supply chain isn't interested. So I think it's about half and half. We're looking for people who frankly have more technical skills than I have when I came into this role but who also are willing to kind of work in the culture and and kind of have the right fit from a personality, passion, persistence place to actually be the next person we want to hire. And those two things are super important, probably equally important. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by that sort of combination. There's like a, an instinct part of that description that you were just explaining um, that I think is so important. And I love the sort of the willingness to get get in it and figure it out, you know, just knuckle down and kind of do it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, and you mentioned, you know, the convincing um, and the communication side of part of that. wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've learned from your years of working in that culture and the working with corporate executives on sustainability. I'm sure there's been some convincing along the way in that process. Yeah, I mean, I think it that's one of the biggest myths about Interface, that because we had this amazing founder who set the company on the path, that like immediately everybody changed their mind overnight and it's not hard. And I always hear like other people in sustainability, like sort of wistfully say like, well, I, you know, I wish I had your job. And it's like, you know what, <laughs> my job is just as hard as your job. Um, even though I didn't have to convince my CEO, there's 5,000 other people, plus all of our customers, plus our extended supply chain that aren't where my CEO was. Right. So from a you know systemic perspective, we definitely have to convince. Um, we definitely have to think about that. And you know, I think for me, what's been really helpful is 
kind of two things, being mindful of your audiences and how they receive information. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something I've come to later in my career where because I have the mindset I do and I was trained as a lawyer when I was younger, I just thought, well, if I just tell people what's happening and give people the facts, surely (laughs) they'll just agree with what I want to do and the pace of what I want to do and the scale of what I want to do. And I think one thing you you kind of learn later on is not everybody just receives information and does a factual assessment, particularly if their worldview is maybe not as aligned as yours. So if you have someone who doesn't maybe see themselves as um, connected to the natural world, um, they aren't gonna understand the imperative to act quickly and bold Um, they're not going to see the company's role in doing that. And so I think one thing I've learned with age is a much more mindful approach to how will your audience receive this and, and helping to craft the message or the approach or the, you know, way that you deal that deal with that. And so that might mean um, talking to factory teams in a way that's much less about environmental preservation and much more about why is this good for you? How does this connect mm-hmm. to your life? Um, I think the other thing is at the executive level, we just went through a change in leadership where for the first time five years ago, we hired a CEO who came from outside of Interface. And um, he's since left the business, but one of the things that I encountered in that um, leader coming from outside the business is that he really was challenged to accept conflict in a larger group meeting. And it was something I had never been exposed to. Um, but, you know, there, there is definitely a CEO culture, a senior leader culture that exists where they don't like to show that they don't know everything. (laughs) And I frankly never experienced that to this level. And so I had to learn, and it was a good lesson. Frankly, I had to learn to put myself in the shoes of someone else and think about things like psychological safety. You know, am I creating an environment where our senior leaders can make a risky decision. And in retrospect, I don't want to denigrate this person because we were talking to an incoming CEO about adopting a new mission for the company that was using language like reversing global warming. It was very bold. Mm -hmm. It was very different than probably anywhere he had ever been before. And I was getting some extreme pushback. And it, it made me have to learn how do you navigate giving very senior leaders the safety and the space Mm -hmm. to to really hash out like big decisions because in our culture we were so used to doing it because ray was ray anderson and then our ceo after him were like yeah this is how interface is we we take on big shit like deal with it (laughs) um and we were all quite comfortable with it but when you bring new people into that environment and i think this is true of all ceos we're asking you to bet the brand, to put some significant resources from your bottom line, to open your company up from a transparency perspective. That's, that's big shit. And, you know, so those things I've really learned, which is how, how are you frankly more empathetic of the people you're trying to advocate with? And 
some of that comes with age, but I also think in a lot of the MBA programs you're seeing right now, they're training people to be mindful of that and creating, you know, emotional intelligence training and psychological safety. I wish I had had those tools 15 years ago. Oh, thank goodness that's being taught. <laughs> well, it's so interesting too. Um, I think perhaps, I mean, now that you have a little distance from that exact moment, I mean, it's such an interesting notion, um, you know, and the way you frame that, you know, that you're asking them to bet the brand. I mean, that is huge. It's a very big proposition and clearly not a culture that everyone is comfortable with. Um, that's really fascinating. I wanted to ask you too, I think many companies, you know, haven't been at this as long as Interface. And so they may be on their like first round of sort of ambitious sustainability goals. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it's like to drive a company's sustainability goals over time, right? You guys have had multiple sort of iterations of those goals and those approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, so last summer we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the start of this for us. And I think I've been here 16 years and what I think we thought 25 years ago was a leadership position or something really innovative has obviously changed. And so one thing I think you always have to be mindful of is as your knowledge grows, um, your strategy is going to change and you've got to bring your senior leadership team along with you. And so to me, there's always a part that's never in the strategy, which is how are you continuing to kind of educate and build awareness on your senior leadership team so that they realize that, you know, when we started 25 years ago, the first things we talked about, the first things we could make tangible were the operational footprint of our company. How much energy are we using that's not renewable, which, which by the way, was zero renewable energy? Um, how much are we wasting? How much water are we using? And, and it, it took us a couple of years to even figure out how to measure that and to get people to understand what levers we could pull to reduce that. But as we were doing that, the team here was really learning, well, well, hang on a second. If we go beyond that and we use life cycle assessment, what we quickly learn as a product manufacturer is this, the operational footprint, what we're doing in the factory is a tiny piece of our overall impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you do a life cycle assessment on the products, we quickly realize that the raw material piece that's coming from our extended supply chain is the big nut from a carbon perspective, from a negative water perspective, all of those pieces. And so we had to make the jump towards sort of saying, we still have to be a great physical company, but our bigger issues lie within the supply chain, within how we make the products, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think there are still a lot of companies who haven't made that jump. And so one thing that I'm keenly aware of is constantly navigating us towards not being complacent, but also making sure that the senior leadership team who's going to help me um, support me in investing in those jumps really understands where the next jump is. And then at the same time, we've got to manage bringing the rest of the company along in a kind of more progressive way. And that means, you know, constantly having sustainability on the agenda from an internal communications perspective, making mm -hmm. sure we have moments to celebrate. So I think, you know, we think a lot about like 
just setting targets and commitments and achieving them and reporting progress. And that's a, like a part of the job. Sadly, for a lot of sustainability professionals, as you guys know, that's like 90% of their job. You know, they're just managing, like talking about what they're doing now and not managing towards the future. So I think that's where I try to spend a lot of my strategic time and one thing I'm super proud of is when this new CEO came in five years ago, we had essentially accomplished a lot of the targets we set when Ray kicked off this mission 25 years ago. I mean, we have numbers like, you know, decarbonizing the business 96%, reducing waste to landfill 92%, global renewable energy 90%. So we were like in the 90s there of the let's just reduce our footprint stuff. And we had already made the shift 10 years before about now we got to go to products. And we had made all the products carbon neutral after reducing the footprint of those 70%, right? Um, so our new CEO at the time was saying like, this is great. I've just come into this company and we're <laughs> killing it. <laughs> and I was sort of saying, you know, again, like not as respectful of psychological safety as I could be. Um, no way. We have to go so much further. Like this is not enough. Like this is just about shifting deck chairs on the Titanic. We've got to reverse global warming. We've got to get much more aggressive about the future, about being a regenerative business and really living into that. And so it was kind of like that moment where you realize like, what's your real job? And my real job at that moment was making sure that we didn't squander the opportunity of navigating where we were going to go next by shooting too low. And, you know, being able to say that we were a company that in our past did some really innovative stuff and just sit on our asses. So I'm super proud that like the tears, the arguments, the convincing, the all of that led us to a place where in Ray Anderson's company, we adopted a really ambitious next mission. That's fantastic. I, I love that notion of having that like, wait a minute, pause, what is my real job right now in this moment <laughs> kind of thing yeah. where you really, you know, a bit of a reset about like impact and purpose and things like that. I think that's so valuable, no matter what field you're in, actually, yeah. you know, to do that sort of gut check every so often. Erin, is there a project you're working on right now that you want listeners to know about? Um, you know, I think there's some really exciting things happening um, around how we reimagine regenerative in terms of our physical spaces. And it's nowhere near close to where it needs to be. But over the last two or three years, we've been doing this collaborative project called Factory as a Forest. And it started out as an idea um, after a conversation with Janine Benius who's kind of like the mother of biomimicry, the creator of biomimicry 3.8 and the Biomimicry Institute. Um, she's this amazing biologist. And, you know, we were talking about this very thing. We've done a good job to get to a zero footprint factory, but what's next? Like, what what does a positive factory look like? And, you know, she kind of challenged me and said, it's not another green building standard when your factory is functionally indistinguishable from a high-performing ecosystem that to me is sustainable 
I was like, holy shit, I don't even, I don't even know what that means. I need to hire you to help break that down. Like in my brain, like what's the process of going from that kind of abstract idea to an implementation plan in a factory. So we decided to collaborate on this project where we bring them in to measure a high performing ecosystem in the same area as our factory location because this is very much place-based um, response and sort of figure out what it does down to the level of actual numbers. How much carbon does it sequester per square mile? How much water can it filter? What does it do for air quality? What does it do for habitat? You know, there's lots of metrics. And then compare and contrast that to what we do as a company in that same space. And it's stark when you realize most companies are still in the place of just not trying to screw up that space by put by putting pollution in it or paving over too much of it, right? No one's ever asked themselves, how will the factory sequester just as much carbon as this forest? How will we provide access to native plants as much as the local ecosystem, what will that look like? And so it was about taking that and actually creating some numbers, a gap assessment from where the ecosystem is performing and where our company is performing, and then putting in place a series of design behavior alterations that may take, frankly, a couple decades to get there, but moving the company in that direction. And so we're really in the meat of having done all of those four steps in our largest factory in the US and are now kind of figuring out, okay, we've done a few things. What's the kind of next 10 year plan and how close will that get us to this functional equivalency? And I think it's super interesting. Um, and, and the biomimicry 3.8 guys have actually taken it even further. They've now gathered a group of companies under the banner of Project Positive and Ford Motor Company is doing this, Google's doing this, Kohler is a part of it. So we're starting to see this amazing thinking that we kind of incubated now being applied at huge companies. Mm -hmm. and, and it's super exciting to see like what they're gonna come up with because, I mean, I love the idea that Ford's doing it because it's like you have way more people there. <laughs> you have lots <laughs> of really smart engineers. I can't wait to see what design interventions you come up with at your factory because we can probably use it at our factory. Yeah, that is just stunning to think about. Um, and, and it does kind of, I think, make it more tangible the ways in which Janine Benyus is, is brilliant <laughs> and is helping us think about things in different ways. Because, yeah, it's a very different conception of what we are capable of um, when we have the opportunity to, you know, when we are a business, right? Like when you function as a business and you have some of these larger interventions that you make in the natural world and, and building a factory or running a factory is totally one of them. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what Ford does well then. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of being an industry leader, because I think, I think this... Um, you know, everyone want, probably wants to be perceived as an industry leader when it comes to this kind of stuff, but you know what it really feels like. And I want to ask you um, about one aspect of it that I imagine is very hard, which is that Interface is essentially a leader in the green building movement in general. And the movement itself is always has some controversies, has some debates about what the priorities of the movement should be. And 
I am hoping that you can talk a little bit about how you navigate um, these debates in the movement and what, how, how you decide what's important to you and to interface as the sort of, you know, as these priorities are shifting, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I feel like definitely I view the company and also many of the individuals who work here, including myself, as not just part of the industry, but part of the movement. And I hope that and we aspire to be helping lead parts of that movement in a certain direction. I think one of the challenges of the, quote, green building movement is there's many movements within that, right? There's kind of the healthy building side, there's the healthy materials, there's the conventional kind of green building movement, which was, again, a lot on the operation of these spaces, and there are some huge gaps. So I think one one thing that we've tried to do strategically is say, like, it's not enough just to get your business to the place where it needs to be, we actively have an obligation to share that, to share what we're learning. So you see, like we we joke, like we'll go to the opening of a garage door and talk if you ask us to, <laughs> because it's been built into the culture of this company that we have seen the progress that happens when we just show other people what we're doing, whether it's the carpet industry, whether it's the green building, you know, the broader set of manufacturers, whether it's people like the U.S. Green Building Council, we've actually seen that we can influence people because people will come back years later and say something like, you know, Ray Anderson came and spoke to us 10 years ago, and that's when we decided to make half of our portfolio renewable energy. It's like, holy cow. So I think that's part of it. Being part of the movement means you share what you're doing, but then you also just don't leave it there. You know, if you come across a set of customers who don't know what biomimicry is, when we're talking to you about this flooring, it's our obligation to build awareness, to educate. So I think, you know, we've ta- that's taken the form of customer conferences, of doing scholarships for customers to go learn more about biomimicry, learn more about embodied carbon. It's taken the form of us building tools. You know, customers will say like, I agree, this is where we all need to be. I want to pick a carbon neutral carpet tile, for example, but I don't have time to read 18 environmental product declarations. Can you help us build a tool? So I think if you're part of the movement, you don't just get to tell your story. You own the obligation of saying, how do we get everybody else that's in this tent to the level of where we are? How do we share? How do we educate? How do we build awareness? How do we give people tools? Like that should be the threshold for anybody getting to say they're in the movement. And then the other thing is how do we hold people accountable for delivering on progress? So that's the piece that I think we still struggle with you know, it drives us crazy that everyone in the green building movement has a sustainable product story. And there's a big difference between how those products perform and how they get made. And, and it's hard, it's hard to navigate that without being negative, which we, you know, as a brand and as a company, just don't want to spend time saying like, these guys are really bad. Don't buy their products. But I think driving accountability is an area that that we all need to work on. So how that manifests itself in our world 
as a product maker is we work really closely with customer groups and say, write really good specifications. <laughs> you know, if you're doing all the office finishes for a large tech company in California, write a really high bar for what those products need to be and help the movement towards green building happen at the purchasing level, at the specification level, you know, really dig in on that stuff because we've seen it be really effective in changing our own behavior, you know, where people have concerns about materials and products or lack of recycling or the global warming potential of a certain product, writing a standard if you're someone like a General Motors or a Microsoft, writing the standard of product you want can have a humongous influence on driving change. Yeah, and I just want to say, I feel like one of the things that's so important about your role and Interface's role and companies, well, I'll just say it's that if you're a buyer of something, you don't always know how to ask for, you don't always know what to ask for in terms of sustainability Mm -hmm attributes and you know company attributes and all the things that relate to this work and it's extremely helpful to have someone who knows what it looks like to be the seller of that object or service and what it looks like to be very very progressive about the uh, sustainability aspects of what they're doing Um, because it's just I think oftentimes you just it's it's hard to know um, what are the options, you know, and so you, but if you don't have a company like Interface, it's really taking that question from the very fundamental level of, of environmental stewardship, like in the truest, deepest sense, you know, you don't, you don't get, you don't get the full set of options about what companies can do. Um, So, so thank you for that. It totally makes sense. And I also really like your definition of the difference between sort of being a part of the industry and being a part of the movement and that being a part of the movement really means um, helping others and not just uh, doing your own sort of cleaning up your own house, which I, th- I think is super true. Um, anymore, right? I mean, think about it. And the, we talk about the green building movement in the industry. Um, we have 20 year practitioners in this industry, whether they're architects and designers, interior designers, whether they're corporate real estate portfolio managers. And sometimes over the last two years in the however many audiences I've talked to or our sustainability team members have talked to, they are surprised to know that 40% of global carbon emissions come from the built environment space. And that is, you know, that number is construction, it's materials, and it's operation of buildings. I mean, in our industry, we have people who want to do something about global warming, and they have yet to make the connection at a high level of how the built environment space connects into that. And then at the really tactical level of how choosing a carbon neutral product then can actually have an impact. And so it's super important now when we talk about what role do you want to play in the movement? Like, what is the movement? I think we're laser focused on decarbonizing the built environment and getting people to really understand things like embodied carbon 
and carbon neutral products. And, you know, we will kind of go to the mat. We're investing in training right now. We're working on a six module training for our salespeople on carbon because we want them to show up in your offices (laughs) and be able to make that connection for you when they're there to sell a carpet tile or a piece of LVT, you're going to get 40%. (laughs) What does this mean for a building? What does this mean for a product? What does it mean for embodied carbon? How do I pick the right one? This product is carbon neutral. That's the level of commitment we have. And I mean, that's what it takes. Yeah, it's absolutely what it takes. I think, I think that's a really important point. And, and I think it's, it's partially that it's, using every lever that you have available to you and and salespeople, especially your salespeople, I know some of them personally are very, uh, very convincing. <laughs> They're, <laughs> They're super passionate. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I don't know, I just think, I think it's, uh, I think it's cool to see just how much it's really uh, gets into the culture of the place. I mean, I think we say to people on the front end, if you want to work here, you are not just selling sustainable flooring products, you are convincing people that what we are doing at our company and the manifestation of that is the product is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. And we want you to turn people. <laughs> I think we're very upfront about saying that. And I think what's great is some of our people know it and we're a magnet for that. And you know, some people aren't. Some people don't want to be a professional advocate. They just want to sell flooring. And that's okay too. I think it's just all about getting that right person. And if you really are a company who is trying to change the world, which we think we are, um, it has to extend to everybody's job. Every, everybody is focused on sustainability in a very real way. That's, that's a hard, uh, it's a hard thing to do in a company. So I appreciate it. Um, uh, yeah, it's super cool. And I, I also feel like, um, well, as you know, um, but the listeners will not know, we met at this amazing opportunity of a week in Montana, like on a ranch and, you know, riding horses and taking hikes and all these crazy things. Um, and, and one of the things that I remember thinking about when I was there at a very different time in my career uh, was just the fact that you've gone through um, so many phases of a company having to make these sort of changes and continuations of a of a fight and it's one of the things I appreciate most in hearing you talk about this stuff is that every new frontier of the company embodying this stuff more is worth doing and kind of continues into you know one of the aspects of what Ray Anderson did was that it it wasn't a particularly simple vision that he had to and it wasn't like numeric you know so there's not really an ending point and that that really shows up, um, and I admire that a lot, and think a lot about how we get more companies to start behaving that way. Um, I think it's probably pretty necessary given the way the world works today. Um, so, I have one last question for you, and then I think Kira is going to wrap it up. My last question is where you think we aren't doing enough work as a movement: the lack of progress areas, things that you think where we should be paying more attention and time. Oh boy. Sometimes I think I'm too far in it, but I feel like it's two pieces. It's at the corporate level in particular, 
I think companies, most companies beyond the handful of people who kind of really get it. And it's the people who always show up on that globe scan survey, you know, it's Unilever, Ikea, all, all the people we all respect. And a lot of the new companies like Boreo, whose whole business model is founded on kind of a more sustainable approach, like minus all those guys, the vast majority of businesses who say they are engaging in sustainability are still doing it at a very shallow level. And that's like a horrible overgeneralization, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. They're, they've got this view where their people on sustainability are largely focused on doing initiatives that are not hugely material to the company and they spend a lot of time communicating on it. You know, for those of us who do business, who engage with those companies, how do we reset the expectation for what it actually means for your business to address sustainability. I would love for more focus to be there um, for sure. And that takes courage. Getting back to what we said in the beginning, I mean, confronting, finding ways to elevate with the very senior leadership of your company, we are not doing enough. We are shifting deck chairs on the Titanic. That takes a lot of courage. That's really hard work. And that's not what most people are trained to do. But if you're super passionate about creating a more sustainable world, back to what Kira said, that's actually your job. Your title might be head of sustainability. Your job might be, how do I get my institution to understand and come to grips with how our model is fundamentally in opposition to where we need to be? And it's possible, people navigate it. You know, there are companies who are really taking this on in significant ways that either didn't start out as a sustainable enterprise and didn't have a really green CEO. Um, And they may have, you know, their CEOs, I think, have been turned or have come to appreciate this through different ways. And, And I think that's like a big, deep challenge. But I would hate to be someone who as a sustainability director spent my entire career writing a sustainability report that shares marginal progress. So how do we enable people in our profession to confront that big thing? You know, I don't have the answer. I know that there's a lot of great work happening. Leaf Sharp has this really great program, which is um, a continuing education program offered through Harvard that is about enabling existing sustainability practitioners and companies to really give them the tools and the mindsets to do this kind of work. And so I think there need to be a lot more programs like that and a lot more focus on that at the kind of really tactical level, but it confronts what I think is I don't want to go so far as to say it's a hypocrisy, but it confronts what I think is one of the big challenges here that lots of companies hire sustainability people, but they're not on a pathway to become a sustainable company. That is so interesting. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned Leith Sharp's program because we are having her on soon and we can't wait to talk more about it. And that's a perfect segue to, I mean, I really, it's interesting. I think that there's a piece is missing and this is something that I think Interface has done since Ray's 
you know, conversion to this topic, which is really seeing this area as a leadership proposition in and of itself and just going that direct, you know, like really taking that on as a holistic thing rather than, like you say, sort of a reporting exercise <laughs> on the side. Um, but I wanted to, so I wanted to lastly ask you is um, a little bit more on individuals rather than companies. I mean, you mentioned some companies that are thinking holistically like you guys are, but who are you most inspired by these days? People, leaders, any in any area, they could be climate leaders or built environment leaders or just business folks, um, any, any type of person. Um, I mean, I mentioned Janine Benny is she to me is someone that has really educated me and she's someone who's really able to translate through her biological brain, um, kind of context and, and connection to the natural world. And so she's someone that I really admire. I've recently over the last couple months been working with um, this amazing man who runs the University of Hawaii's Indigenous Innovation Program, Kamu Inos. And it just the just the level of interaction and the the conversations I have with this man and with the people on his team around community and bringing kind of indigenous thinking into our life and our practice has really been something I've never experienced in my entire career. And I often get off the calls with them and I'm like emotionally drained because it's such a way of working and being that's not what I've been taught from kind of a more American business sort of how do you have a relationship that I'm often like exhausted, but exhausted and exhilarated. And we've been having this really interesting conversation of how does a business relate to a community? What, what should our bar and aspiration be for enriching the communities where we live and work? So that could be the towns where we're located, but it could also just be like our broader employee community in a certain place where we have a certain factory. And, you know, I don't think we have a great model uh, as Americans for mm -hmm. building community. <laughs> So uh, it's been really interesting to work with kind of an indigenous leader and really understand that lens. So I would say, you know, Janine, Kamu, I mean, I can find someone every day who I think is amazing. <laughs> I have no, no shortage of um, amazing people, but I think those two for me are um, really interesting. And lastly, I would say, have you guys been following the kind of, uh, I'm sure being in the Bay Area, are you guys aware of the book kind of All Be Gone in the Dark and the whole HBO series that's come out of that? No. Mm -mm. It's a, there's a really interesting story about um, the kind of the focus on and the search for the Golden State Killer. Oh, yes. Right? I did read the book. Sorry. Yes. It through me. And so that, you know, there was just an HBO series that's been done based on Michelle McNamara and the kind of posthumous publishing of her book by that title, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And again, what ties it back to me was the level of passion this woman had. She was a citizen detective and a writer and got really interested and focused on this and just became like immersed in 
this whole conversation of trying to find this person. But what I, what I think is the good lesson learned for me and what inspires me about her work is she was able to take this incredibly dark subject matter and look at it in a fundamentally new way and talk about the role of citizen detectives and the role of her kind of getting involved and really translate this incredibly tragic stuff into something that people care about. And the book was hugely successful. They're making this movie. And so I'm often looking at that and sort of saying, what can I learn there from this amazing woman about how to make people see sustainability, see our connection to the natural world in a way that inspires them and makes them feel good? That's ultimately really what we need to be doing. That's awesome. Um, I would not have thought <laughs> that would be a place of inspiration, but that's super cool. Well, with that, we have to wrap up. Um, that was a wonderful way to end. Thank you so much, Erin, for being with us. It was a delight to have you. Really enjoyed talking with you guys. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Um, and yeah, with that, that, that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to our listeners, you all. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.